Good morning, Nashville. My name is Braden Gall, and this is the 444 Wednesday, December 15th. Coming up on the show today, we've got your golden nuggets from the guys over at the Club and Country Podcast, Talking Nashville SC. We will hear from Tom Luganbill of ESPN. The recruiting editor has a theory on maybe why Tennessee fans should not be as upset with this recruiting class as it looks on paper. But we begin with comparing the Tennessee Titans offense with Derrick Henry to the Tennessee Titans offense without it. And what does it mean for this team moving forward into the postseason? I just want to remind you guys, of course, of the Kingston Group. You know I do it every single morning. These folks are award-winning, locally-owned, custom home and remodeling firm. The best people in the business in Nashville, of course, the home industry. Slammed right now in this market, but you need to make smart decisions for your home, for your family, and for your bank accounts. And that's where the Kingston Group comes in. Check out their website. Have a conversation with them. BuildKG.com. Just talk with them. I guarantee you will learn something. You will be a smarter homeowner because of it, whether you use them or not. BuildKG.com. Remember the name, the Kingston Group. Now that we've got five games worth of Titans football to study without Derrick Henry, I thought we'd compare the two offenses to see just how big of an impact the King makes on this team. Yes, there are other factors, of course. The offensive line has actually gotten healthier, but A.J. Brown is out and Julio Jones has missed some time. So let's just oversimplify this and simply compare the Titans' first eight games with Henry to the last five games without him and see what happens. The Titans, of course, were 6-2 and two in their first eight. They scored 28.4 points per game, averaged 377 yards, rushed for 147 yards, and turned the ball over 11 times. In the five games without Henry, the Titans have scored just 19 points per game, averaged less than 300 yards per game of offense, rushed for 122 yards per game, and have 10 turnovers. In those first eight games, Ryan Tannehill was completing 66% of his passes at 7.6 yards per attempt with a quarterback rating over 90. He was sacked three times per game, accounted for 13 touchdowns, and turned the ball over 10 times. In his last five, he's completed exactly the same, 66% of his passes, but for a paltry 6.1 yards per attempt with a quarterback rating under 75, and has been sacked fewer times per game and has thrown just four touchdown passes against six interceptions. One would, of course, expect the offense to take a dip without the best running back on the planet in the lineup. But it's actually the passing game and subsequent lack of scoring that has taken the biggest hit. Somehow this team has managed to run the ball relatively well without Henry, topping 100 yards in three straight games and averaging only a few yards less per game. Keep in mind that number is skewed by the huge rushing day against New England. I know that's a lot of numbers, but almost 100 yards less per game of offense, under 300 per game? almost 10 fewer points per game, and almost twice as many turnovers per game. As I just pointed out, the rushing attack has been adequate, and the offensive line is actually giving up fewer sacks. But Tannehill's efficiency numbers, in particular his yards per attempt, has plummeted, and he's failed to protect the football at least until the Jacksonville win. This obviously is a direct correlation to two things. The Titans' inability to use play action to go down the field without the Derrick Henry line-of-scrimmage gravitational force and Brown and Jones being out. None of this is cause for huge concern. In fact, looking at these putrid offensive numbers and then a glance at the standings might actually make the case for how this team is treading water without Henry quite well. They are 3-2 and two since losing the Kings, still tied for the best record in the AFC, and appear to be getting healthier at precisely the right time. And we talked about how much optimism there is on the defensive side of the ball on yesterday's show. There is even some positive news that Henry is working towards the earlier side of his timetable, which was 6-10 to weeks about 6 weeks ago. 
So while the numbers look grim, and frankly, Tannehill's numbers have been grim all season, you could actually paint this team's outlook with a positive twist. The Titans are significantly less productive, less dynamic, scoring less, and turning the ball over more, but basically haven't moved anywhere in the standings with four games against beatable teams left to go. Just a 2-2 two and two record against the Steelers, Niners, Dolphins, and Texans would give this Titans team an 11-6 and six season, a definite AFC South championship, and probably no worse than the three seed in the playoffs. Is it the one seed, a bye week, a third straight rushing championship, and maybe a bit disappointing considering the start of the year? Of course it is, for sure. But all that matters is what happens in the postseason. And if, a huge if, Derrick Henry can return to full form by the time the playoffs roll around, then this team will have as good a chance as any in the wide-open AFC to make a deep run. That is, of course, assuming that the offense's production goes right back to where it was before the injury. Wednesday is National Signing Day, and while I will not go into any specifics about any individual players, the team rankings are incredibly important. See Tuesday's show or my Twitter account, at Braden Gall, for the data you need to know about how to consume team rankings. And in the SEC, there are a handful of teams that have significantly overachieved in recruiting so far to date. Kentucky, with a potential top 10 class, is having one of the best recruiting calendar years in the history of the program. Missouri has a chance at getting to the top 10 in a top 15 class. South Carolina is really solid as well. The Vanderbilt Commodores even have a top 30 class coming in, which would be one of the highest rated classes in the history of Vanderbilt football, comparable to some of those James Franklin classes. So this looks like a highly competitive recruiting trail in the SEC East. What does that mean for Josh Heupel, who has questions about his ability to recruit coming from his days at UCF? Well, the good news is the Tennessee Volunteers have increased their rankings of late, entering Wednesday with a top 20 class in the country, even if it is fourth or fifth in the East and barely top 10 in the SEC. They have moved into the top 20 nationally, which is really big news. And I had a chance on the Fringe Element podcast to talk with ESPN recruiting editor Tom Luganbill about Josh Heupel and Tennessee and why it is that maybe Vols fans should not be as concerned about this year's recruiting class as the rankings might indicate. You've got a new coaching staff that couldn't have any contact face-to-face with any kids. Couldn't go out on the road. Kids couldn't come on campus. And I think that's also what has hurt Tennessee because this year for Tennessee in the state is as good a year top to bottom as the state of Tennessee has ever had. And right now, Tennessee only has one verbal commitment. I don't think that's all on Josh Heupel. I think a lot of that is on getting behind because of the pandemic, not being able to get out on the road immediately. What they've inherited in the sense of perception and uncertainty as it relates to the NCAA investigation and not having an ending in sight yet. So now you got the negative recruiting tactics being used against you. I just think they've overcome. It goes seven and five. Look at the teams they lost to, Brady. It's unbelievable. They lost to the team that won the ACC, the team that won the SEC, the team that followed runner-up in the SEC. I mean, they really accomplished a lot and were were prolific on offense. So I look at this class for 2022 at Tennessee, and on paper it might look a little bit disappointing when you consider the strength of the in-state kids. But I can also make an argument that in 2023, this class in the state of Tennessee is going to be magnificent. And that is where Tennessee has to rebound. Because now there's no, there won't be any COVID excuses. You're coming off of a potential bowl win where you beat Purdue in the bowl game. And you're going to go into the offseason and be able to have junior days, be able to get on the road, be able to get kids on campus. And, you know, if you have great players in that state, you can't let them go because you don't have enough to build an 85-man roster just in that state. You have to go into everybody's backyard. So to alleviate that challenge, sign the best ones that are at home. 
That was Tom Luganbill of ESPN, recruiting editor. If you want to hear the entire conversation, we talked about Kentucky and Missouri and South Carolina and A&M and Georgia and Bama, LSU, Florida. We talked about it all on the Fringe Element podcast. Go check out the entire interview. I do think it's an interesting concept to think about as it pertains to Josh Heupel and recruiting at Tennessee. This season may not matter as much when it comes to the rankings. You can maybe... To Tom's points about not being able to travel, you're a new coach trying to introduce yourself in-state at Tennessee to a bunch of players and coaches and parents that you're not physically allowed to go meet for the first half of the year. I think that's a huge problem, including the NCAA investigation as well. So it's all things that are not really in his control. So I think that does give him some built-in reasons, maybe, to not have a top 10, top 15 class. Now, while those reasons might be fair and that subtlety and that nuance can be applied to the job that he's doing... It doesn't change the fact that you have the fifth best class in the SEC East and are barely top 10 in the SEC. Eventually, you have to overcome that. So while right now it's okay, we can maybe point to some reasons why this class isn't going to be elite for Tennessee. Next season, that has to change. It has to change immediately or else you will not compete with Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Texas A&M, LSU, and be back to where Tennessee fans believe their program should be, which is competing for division and conference championships. So it's Wednesday and it's time for some golden nuggets from the Club and Country podcast about Nashville SC, trying to make all you folks slightly smarter soccer fans in Music City, Tim Sullivan and Wes Bowling. Of course, this week, they discussed a lot about the offseason and some of the transactions in the MLS Cup, but also took a look at how Nashville SC performed against the best teams that were left in the playoffs and what that means for the overall trajectory of the Nashville SC franchise. The New York City team, a group that Nashville beat 3-1 in Music City in a match that really wasn't all that close. And, uh, of course, Nashville shut out NYC in a scoreless road draw. And, and so now when you look back at, at the eight quarter finalists, Nashville played eight matches against um, those teams, uh, combined four teams that, that they met and ended up making the quarterfinals. In those matches, they allowed just three combined goals, and they were 3-0-5, five clean sheets. Tim, all season long, this Nashville team was at its best when it was playing the best teams. Yeah, it's, it's going to have a bittersweet aura because uh, one point better against the bad teams, um, I think namely Inter-Miami, which got two results against Nashville SC. And the boys in gold may well have gone even deeper into the playoffs. There's obviously value in being tough against the good teams, though. Um, those are the ones that you are going to have to play in the playoffs. Nashville SC obviously um, took down one of them, but was unable to take down Philadelphia Union. So um Nashville, over the course of the year, played a, a different game against the teams that Gary Smith respects than it did against the bad ones, whether I think <laughs> Smith would admit that or not. And I think we pushed him on it, and he didn't quite admit it when we, when we asked him. But yeah. I think the future is, is finding a sweet spot so that you can maximize the results against both of those cohorts, the ones that you think are good and the ones that you uh, suspect are not very good. And I think that can take Nashville to another level. That, of course, was Wes Bowling and Tim Sullivan of the Club and Country podcast, trying to make you guys smarter soccer fans every single week. If you want a thorough conversation about all the offseason transactions that are going on, the MLS Cup playoffs, international news, and all the best stuff about Nashville SC, make sure you're tuned in to the Club and Country podcast out every single Tuesday right here on the 440 Sports Network. Special thanks to the Kingston Group, of course, for bringing you the 440 every single morning. They are Nashville's award-winning, locally-owned, custom home and remodeling firm. BuildKG.com is the website. Before you make any big decisions about your house, make sure you talk to the great people over at the Kingston Group. That's BuildKG.com. Thank you guys for hanging out with us, of course. Please share the product. We really, really appreciate it. It means the world to me to get reviews and 
read what you guys think of the show and to interact, all that great stuff. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall, at 440 Sports as well. Again, please share the product. That's all that we ask. Thank you for listening. This has been the 440 for Wednesday, December 15th. The 440 is a production of 440 Media, written and produced by Braden Gall, music by William Tyler.